<laughs> and it really is an ironic thing in a way. When I came in AA, I was almost always the youngest person in every meeting I attended. <laughs> Amazing how things change. <laughs> uh, I'm grateful for that, but it's a mixed blessing. The only problem is you got to get old to get to get in that condition. So, so it is a mixed blessing. But I'm deeply grateful for. Uh, my last drink was actually the 19th of November of '56, but uh, didn't. <laughs> that, that's now I haven't had a drink since then, but that's not my sobriety date. My sobriety started with my first meeting, which was the following February 2nd, and so my anniversary is the 2nd of February. Uh, never thought it'd last this long. I swear, if I'd have thought I was going to be sober this long, I'd have quit. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, sobriety looked like a long, slow ride to me when I was 24 years old. And, uh, geez, my greatest fear was, man, suppose this thing works. <laughs> so if you've got mixed feelings, you better get out while you can, man. <laughs> They'll get you. <laughs> uh, thanks very, very much for the conference. Thanks a million for the um, the great work. Been a, a, a good conference, solid uh, awful lot of slack time, though. Geez, we had 12 minutes between meetings one time. <laughs> now, I like that. I'm just the kind of go-go drunk that likes that kind of style. And this has been a good one. And, and uh, a lot of energy, a lot of life. I'm a little bit prejudiced because they're a bunch of uh, old friends on, on the program. I, I'm uh, intimate friends with a number of folk who've been been on the program this weekend. And... and uh, in a symbiotic kind of way with Norma. Her mother is, uh, that's a sign you're getting old. She's a grandmother, and her mother is an old and dear friend of mine. <laughs> I love her dearly. And uh, the Canadian, a special thanks to the Canadian delegation. That, uh, it's, it's wonderful to have people from a foreign country to come down here. And, uh, <laughs> they, they do a lot of good missionary work on them. <laughs> and they, uh, they, they mean a lot to me. I, I'm a, I have a, a long, long-standing love affair with Canada, and I've had marvelous, marvelous experiences up there. I'm deeply grateful for a lot of things that have happened in in Canada. I may tell you about some of them later on, but I do. I have an abiding appreciation for Canada. Yeah, I try to express that the best I can. And one of the ways I do it is I try to sleep with a Canadian woman every night that I possibly can. <laughs> I married a girl from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, <laughs> 35 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so when I'm not flying or driving off somewhere, I can sleep with that girl. And that ain't got old yet, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, there are lapses, but <laughs> uh, let me just ask out of curiosity, well, it's not another countdown now, but let me just ask, anybody here who is at their first ever conference or roundup, if you would just stick your hand up, yes, uh, great, 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 welcome, welcome. 
It's super to have you, and I, I'm, I'm, I hope very much that your experience will be something like mine. You know, when I walked in today, I was the most isolated fellow I've ever known, and and uh, and coming to a, events like this and to to, to your know, regular meetings, but particularly to conferences where there's an opportunity to meet a whole bunch of new friends, it, it's just an amazing thing. And the same guy that at one time was uh, the most isolated fellow he's ever known. Today, there's not a single place in North America, or most of the Caribbean, that I can go and not run into somebody I know who's a good friend in Alcoholics Anonymous. And most of that came from just getting out of my little rut and starting to get into the mainstream of life, and it's just amazing what happens. I just marvel at what's happened. Uh, now, what I, I, what I really want to do tonight is tell you a long, gruesome drunkalog. I, I love drunkalog. <laughs> Particularly mine, man. I could listen to that thing all night. <laughs> I'm a terrible minority when I do that. I don't, I don't, I don't disrespect drunkalogs. I, I think they're just wonderful, darn things. That uh, you look at our big book, the first four, one fourth of it is uh, basically drunkalog-related type stuff with a few desperate cries for help. But that's drunkalog stuff, and uh, so it serves a real purpose. It, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna visit that place and then I'm gonna try to move on. So, what I wanna do when I get done here tonight is, uh, I, I wanna leave here believing that you know that, uh, that a chronic alcoholic talked to you. Uh, I, I want to, I want you to know that I'm one of the hopeless variety, that I'm a guy who's here only by the grace of God, and that there's real hope here. There's real hope. Not just for survival and staying dry. But there's real hopes here for finding a new and different life, different than anything that we've ever known. And and uh, so I hope that if I can do that tonight, my job will be done and I will have earned my 85 or 90 dollars that took to get here. <laughs> Maybe I get it. I'm a, I don't know, I don't know. You know, whether I'm a, a regular alcoholic or an average alcoholic, I'm just a plain old alcoholic. Uh, I don't know why. I don't have a lot of curiosity about why. I believe this, uh, among the things that I've come to believe, I think there are two essential agree- ingredients for alcoholism to happen. One is a predisposed personality. Uh, I just think if you, if you, if you are tilted in that direction, a drink will never have much meaning to you. You know, it'll just be a routine kind of an affair. You know, it tends to sparkle for drunks, you know. And so I think there has to be a sort of ready market, a predisposed personality. The other thing you got to have is alcohol. <laughs> now, now, it's pretty heavy stuff. You may want to write it down. It's a, it's a tricky one. <laughs> well, you do have to have alcohol. I've never met an alcoholic didn't drink. Usually a lot, you know. <laughs> Not always, but usually a lot. And and when those two things come together, alcoholism often happens. And and I was one of those who had the predisposed personality. You hear that described hundreds and hundreds of different ways. Uh, we talk about it, like you mentioned, Norm, with the, the thing of feeling outside, feeling different, awkward, and all that kind of stuff. Predisposed personality, I, I, let me put it this way, and then maybe we'll visit a little bit more. I, I doubt it, but we'll try to visit a bit more. Uh in my formative years, when I came along, 
I'd like everybody else had a, a, events to happen in my environment, my early early interaction with folk that kind of put dents in my personality. You know, they they just sort of didn't hit well, and they kind of in, 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 imposed a little wound and stuff. And then in in response to that, I started to develop some characteristics and traits that in the program we call character defects. You know, where I started to develop some sort of scar tissue around that stuff, and it caused me to, to kind of go through life in a warped and kind of strange-looking direction. And so that was a predisposed personality. I was a guy that was very uncomfortable with this thing called life, and when I found booze, man, that thing clicked for me. I had a predisposed personality. And booze was as natural for me as breathing. I just took to it. Nobody had to train me how to do it. I drank an awful lot right from the very beginning. I had a lot of uninformed people tell me I drank too much. <laughs> never agreed with it. I, I never. I, I don't recall a single time in my entire life having a sense of sufficiency with booze. Been so drunk I couldn't lay on the floor. <laughs> Somebody say, "Don't you think you had enough?" And I would, if I could speak at all, I'd say, "One more." <laughs> you know. <laughs> I don't know the, the the feeling or the meaning. Of no thanks. I mean, it has, I have never uttered that word in my life. I don't even do it if I ain't drinking. You know, sometimes my wife and I, Julia talking about going out on dates, sometimes I'll take my wife to a more expensive place that I'd really like to go. I don't like spending that much money. But we'll go, and all, they always give you wine, you lobster. They, they'll always give you wine. Well, they'll offer the wine, and I'll say, sure, give it here. I'll take the wine. And my wife will take it at my insistence. Been trying to teach that girl to drink for 35 years. God, Canadians learn hard. They, they, they just learn. So she'll take the wine and then sit there and mess with it. Mess with it. And, uh, I'm going to hurry up and drink mine. You know, I, Jesus, it just breaks my heart. To, to, it really does. I walk out of there and leave two glasses of wine, one with about that much that's the dumbest thing I have ever seen in my life. I don't understand that kind of behavior. I, I, I'm always fascinated by people. Would somebody come, a waiter will come around and say, more wine? <laughs> and they'll, it's the smoothest looking savoir faire. You know, they, they'll put their hand over the glass. No thanks. <laughs> Every time I say, I just want to strangle them. I, what the, what's wrong with you? I, so I had a predisposed personality. The average fellow would have said, my God, you drink a lot. I drank about the right amount. <laughs> All I could hold. And, and I just fell in love with it. You know, that stuff did something to me, lit up my life. I'd have been stupid to not drink. Man, that time, I tell you, it took an awkward, doofus kid out of nowhere, and it turned me into a world-class character. And I was off and running. And uh, I fell in love with it. I wasn't a born alcoholic. I wasn't an alcoholic at all. I, I was just a kind of a, a tilted kid who got r- amazingly straight when, uh, when when he got tanked up. And, and, so, and so I just took off. I fell in love with the life. I loved everything about it. Loved the action. Loved the line. Loved the shucking and jiving. I loved everything about that stuff, just about. Never got used to dry heaves. They They always were a little difficult. <laughs> But I loved all that other stuff, well, I promise you that. And uh, if I could have helped kept going, ugly as it was, it felt good to me. And ugly as it was, I'd be doing it tonight. I promise you, I'm not here on, on moral or ethical grounds. 
I'm here because I just flat can't drink, you know. Something happened to me. I, I don't know why me. Somebody that loves booze as much as me, why am I going to be the one that can't drink? I mean, that's just stupid. That guy. If ten people take a drink, nine of them go back to business. One stays there. That's me. Now, I don't know why. I don't know why. That it's still, I don't pretend to know anything about alcohol. I know less about it now than I did in my first year of sobriety. I've been tortured with a lot of information. But, uh, some of it kind of interesting. Most of it totally useless. I, I mean, just really. I, I've been harangued about the Doberman pictures of the mind or whatever that is. And... Uh, uh, I mean, that's interesting if you don't have anything to do. And not only fascinating, but I found it to be almost totally unimportant in terms of my recovery. You know, I know one thing about alcoholism that is important above and beyond anything else. I've got it. <laughs> I've got it. And that's all. I mean, that's the one thing I need to know and can't afford to forget. And no matter where it came, environmental, hereditary, chemical, biological, I couldn't care less. I just know that for some reason I got the short straw. And somewhere, best I can tell, when I was about 18, we refer to it a lot of ways. We don't really classically define it much anywhere, but we we, we describe it, and I think it comes across like a a definition to me anyway. There's a place in the third chapter where it says... We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. That, to me, is the most succinct but accurate description, definition of alcoholism that I know. No 500, but that's the most succinct and direct and accurate, because that's what happened. You know, I had a whole lot of garbage in my life. I got in a whole lot of trouble, but I, my alcoholism is not defined by how much trouble I got in. It isn't defined by how many jails I went to. By how many times I had the monkeys. By how many times I woke up in psych wards or hospitals with stuff broken I didn't even know been hurt. And that doesn't find my alcohol. By how many times I've been married. Even counting the one when I married somebody I didn't know. Didn't, didn't even know I was married until I came to with her. Now that's bad news, I promise you. That, but that doesn't define my alcohol. That's just stupidity. I, it's, and uh, if the Pope drank enough, he'd probably do that too. That's, <laughs> well, that's behavior. You know, doesn't define alcoholism. You know that those are occupational hazards of folks who drink too much, and doesn't define mine. What defines mine is that I'm a man who lost the ability to control my drinking. I didn't know it when it happened. No bell went off. Not a clue. You know, I don't think that I visibly, by anybody, if you videoed it, I don't think you would have seen a discernible difference the month before and the month after. I drank as much as I could hold before I was alcoholic. There was a, there was a subtle but important difference that occurred afterward. Now, I didn't notice it because I was busy. I was really busy at the time. <laughs> but But something happened so that if I took a drink, I couldn't predict what would happen. And the real description of alcoholism is in that book. Well, I bet you know that. There's a, I think you said it. A, a description that says, that the alcoholic, if when you drink you can't, you can't 
predict or control the amount you drink, the duration of your drinking, or your behavior when you drink, there's a good chance you're alcoholic. I mean, in fact, I'd go out on a limb and say you're doggone well an alcoholic. That'd be <laughs> and, and that's exactly what happened. Now, now that started. I didn't. I really didn't notice that book because I was so caught up in it, I couldn't see it. But when I took a drink, I would have got so I didn't have a stopping place. You know, I never stopped because it was time. That didn't mean anything. Closing time didn't mean anything. And so I started to develop a pattern of waking up in strange situations. And good God, I could talk all night about, but, but, and I, and I won't even start because I, I can't quit. I'm addicted to talk about this stuff. But I mean, really weird, crazy stuff. And, and, and it got so waking up in, uh, strange places was normal. Yeah. I got so if I woke up and heard bars clanging, I felt comfortable because I knew I was in the right place for once. <laughs> and so that became the pattern of my life. When I started drinking, it would it would be I'd go to until I hit the wall and either go to jail or hospital or run out of booze or whatever. You know, I never just stop on a rational kind of a level. And, and so my life just just went to went to put the, the hell in a handbasket in a hurry. When I when I look at my life, it's it's really startling to take a look at that thing. Young fella bounced out of high school at uh, 16 down in North Carolina, just regular goofy slice of life coming out of there, and uh, going out to conquer the world. What time did I start? 8.30? Something. I don't know. I'll quit here in a little while. <laughs> I don't have any ripples or flushes or flourishes or anything. That when, when the time comes, I'll just quit. I mean, <laughs> mid-sentence, they've got, but I'll just quit. I've kind of developed a little bit of skill in that, of knowing when to quit. I like to be sure and quit about two minutes before you do. And <laughs> hey, if you want to know the loneliest place in the world, be talking to a crowd, and, and you see the, the shade just drops on the eyes, you know. And they, they sit there, but it's just glassy eye looking at them. <laughs> You're talking as long as you want to, but it's done. I mean, you are done. And, <laughs> It's so, <laughs> not, don't, don't fall, I ain't quitting, I'll tell you. <laughs> but, but that's true, so I'll kind of beat that just a little bit. And, uh, and so that, that's, but when I look at that guy, look at that fellow bounced out of there and set out, and in eight years, eight short years, I go from that sort of optimistic, hopefully optimistic kid to a guy who's living on the streets up in the city of Flint, Michigan. Now, by golly, if that ain't a trip, I, I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know if you ever had the pleasure of Flint. If not, <laughs> bless your heart, Dick. Bless your heart. You're clapping because you got out, boy. I know what you're doing. <laughs> now, if you haven't been, I'll tell you, Flint is a marvelous resort city that's just up here. <laughs> Jeez. My nose grew right into the microphone on that. <laughs> well, anyway, that, I didn't mean to go there. Uh, but I, I got with a herd of drunks that were just wandering, and we wandered there. And, and uh, so that's where I settled and uh, became an amateur Yankee. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's, that's where I bit the dust. I mean, I, I just got up there and went to work, worked as long as I could, and then my reputation got in front of me, and then uh, I couldn't get a job in Flint, Michigan. 
Man, they were running buses and trucks to Mississippi and Georgia to get guys like me. And they wouldn't hire me. I'm standing right there, able-bodied American. <laughs> and uh, so that's where it ran. And and um, and that's where it ran down for me. If anybody had told me when I bounced out of high school that that eight years later I would be living on the streets in the city of Flint, Michigan, in a lifestyle that I, honest to God, didn't even know existed. I didn't know. I didn't know people lived like became normal for me. Because I lived, I used to say I lived by my wits that last couple of years, but that's not exactly accurate. I, uh, I lived by my lack of character. I know of little that a man can do that I haven't done. I mean very little that a man can do. Now, I'm not proud of that. I'm not, I'm not a gangster or anything like that, but, but I was a guy who, who lived with, uh, like you do on the street. You, you live with, 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 it's not wits, it's by total lack of character. You know, there was nothing that I would reject on moral grounds. Hustling, conniving, using people, taking advantage of folks, rolling other drunks if they weren't rolling me. You know, it was just the food chain. That was the way it worked. I, I didn't consider that criminality. I don't today. I mean, it was just the way it worked. And uh, wearing that long mane back, back then. And, and that was a very normal thing to do. And it, 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 it's still hard for me to conceive, but very true. That ab- bizarre, abnormal way to live became the only normal life I knew. Anything else became abnormal. I'd look at people going to work and, and doing stuff like that, going to church. It looked bizarre to me. It looked abnormal. And uh, so anyway, that's where I wound up. I never thought I'd ever wind up living that kind of a life. It, it, it seemed normal. Selling my blood, five bucks a throw. That, that, that's, that's what the guys did. That's what I did. You know, I'd line up. I didn't know where the line was going. I'd just get in there anyway. If it was my guys, so I knew it had something in there. And I'm sure they'd have sucked me dry if I if I'd have if, I, if they hadn't had controls on people like me. So anyway, that that that's who I was. I, I was just one of those chaotic kind of drunks that took off like a runaway train. And I'm confident I wouldn't have lived to be 30 if I hadn't been brought to stop. Now I, I was I was brought to stop finally, unfortunately not soon enough. And uh, before I got here. I wound up doing the kind of thing that I know every alcoholic in this room certainly has, has feared doing. Uh, thank God most don't. Thank God that young man that, that, that head on with you uh, didn't do it, but came close. And that, that, I don't know of an alcoholic that hasn't had those nagging fears and panicky feelings when you wake up and not sure what you've done. Oh, my God, what's happened? And, uh, and that was me, hundreds of times when I'd wake up and, and frantically look around to try to figure out where I was and what I'd done, see if my car was there, if there was blood on it, whatever, and always sigh, breathe a sigh of relief and go out and then do it again. And uh, one morning I woke up and it was not that way. I, I woke up in jail, you know, normal routine. There was a jail up in Genesee County that, that, that was a normal, no, that was a normal roosting place for me. I was there, a very, very, very well-known person there, one of the better customers. And uh, I came to, I assumed that I was in there for the same as always, you know, hustling or whatever, you know, street behavior. And uh, I wait just a little while. The jailer came by. I knew him quite well. And I said, when can I get out? He would normally say 10 o'clock, but he said, I hope never, and walked off. And I had not a clue what he was talking about. And then some of the other guys in there, the drunk tank, told me that the night before, 
I'd gotten hold of somebody's car and was driving blind drunk, blacked out down the main street of that city and had run down and killed two people. And, and my response, uh, there's no way to describe it, no, no point to describe it. it there, there is no way to describe that shock and disbelief. I, I, mean, I knew I was capable of anything, but I just could not handle the fact that I'd taken two lives. And, and I don't care how deranged you might be, you don't balance the scales between a street drunk and two fine young folks <laughs> with their lives in front of them. It just doesn't work out. And, and my response was to just just uh, just try to push it away and 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 not accept it, and then gradually accepted the truth. I'd done more damage than any drunk ever ought to be allowed to do. And, um, and my response was just I didn't want to get out of there. I was afraid to get out, ashamed to get out, ashamed to be breathing. And um, only time I ever ever got to been in jail didn't try to get out. And then somebody learned one of the policemen there learned that I had family down in North Carolina that contacted my folks. And they, uh, they came up. They, they made what was to be my mother's last trip to get her ba- little baby boy out of jail. It wasn't her first one, but it was her last one. And she died some 29 years later with a heart full of gratitude for a program that had given her a son for those years. <laughs> I didn't know how to tell them I didn't want out. I, I, I didn't know how to say that. I mean, it's just such a weird thing to say. And, 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 uh, so I just let things happen. You know, I just, I was just, I was through doing stuff. I just let stuff happen. They got an attorney, got me released on bond, knew I would never drink again. My God, how could you drink after that? Anybody that's got an ounce of sense will tell you if it gets bad enough, you'll quit. Don't believe that. If you're talking about alcoholism. I didn't know it. That was the least likely time that I would have stopped, but I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. And I, I honestly believed that it would be physically impossible for me to pick up a drink. The guilt was too great. And uh, I got out and stayed sober a day and a half. And then, of course, I drank. God knows I didn't know what to do with myself. I couldn't stand to be around anybody. couldn't stand to look at anybody. And I just walked the streets all night. And the next day, about noon, I was gone. And from July to November of 56, I drank truly like nobody I've ever seen. No question about it. It was pathological drinking. I, I know I was trying to drink myself death. That was obvious. A wino could have diagnosed me. And uh, so I was just on that on that march and, and stayed blind drunk as, as much as I possibly could. And then that last drink on the 19th of November was in a, was a bottle of gin that had a little more than, than uh, that level in it. And I didn't know it was going to be my last drink for a long time, but but it, but it, it's been a last one for a lot longer than I ever thought it would. And and I, and so I had that drink, went down to court, knew that I wouldn't be back. I knew it was a one-way trip. And uh, I went down. I had no defense. I mean, I mean, how do you defend a behavior in a blackout that you know nothing about? You know, you know somebody, if, you, if you're somebody who's had blackouts, I guarantee you somebody could walk up to you and say, do you know what you did to Christmas Day last year? And if you were blacked out, the best you can say is, geez, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. But that's the best you can do. And so I, I couldn't even testify at my own trial. I'm not a witness to my own crime. And and, uh, and so I, they went through the trial, and, and I was found guilty. Of course, I knew I would be, and, and sentenced to a max of 15 years in the, in the Michigan State Penitentiary. Now I, I was, you know, I, I was a street character, and, and going to jail was a routine for me. I, but going to a penitentiary was a different ball game, and I knew that. You know, I knew Jackson Prison was not Disneyland. I, I was well aware because some of the guys I hustled around with were in and out of there, and if they were there, it was not a nice place to be. And and uh, so I, I, I when, when that judge passed that sentence, I, I had a an instinctive reaction of fear, very normal reaction of fear. 
But at the same time, the most real sense of relief I'd ever known because I knew it was over. It was over. Now, I'm not talking about there be a new day. I'm talking about it's done. And the next day I walked in, walked in. I went in on a chain between me and five other guys and, and, uh, and walked into a place. I, I, I never, truly never believed I would ever come out of there alive and didn't care. I was absolutely resigned to any, any notion of trying to regroup and live again. I, I just was done. And, and if I had any goal whatsoever, it was to disappear. And, and, and so I walked into there. And it, you know, the amazing thing to me is with a, with a wild life like that, ending with, with such a tragic kind of a thing, and a guy that's reached a point of, of total just hopelessness, you know, just hopelessness, uh, amazing thing to me that rather than be in the end, that was to be the land of beginning again. And I wasn't even looking for a new beginning. And, and I'll tell you what happened, and uh, I'll tell you as much as I can, as quick as I can. The... Uh, what happened? You know, that, what, what was it that happened to take a, a guy like that in that frame of mind? That I'm 24 years old. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced I'm not an alcoholic. I'd been thrown out of the military for alcoholism. I'd, have, I'd been diagnosed that by a lot of people, but I didn't believe that. I really believed I was a guy with a lot of potential that was getting ready to happen. That, that's what I really believed. <laughs> and uh, it was a long time before happening, though. And, and so I, I didn't really believe that stuff. And, and this, this, the, the thing that started to turn the, the point for me, I was a really, really beat up guy and, uh, didn't communicate with people, didn't talk with anybody, just sat in complete isolation in that cell. And one day a guy called me out for an interview, a fellow named Martin. He just graduated from college, came to work down there. And, uh, I don't think he knew anything about alcoholism. I, I probably knew more than he did and I didn't know anything, but he had been taught by somebody. That if you see a guy and he's got a record this thick that's all about booze, tell him you ought to go to AA. Well, that's what that guy did. He sat down and he did a social work interview with me and I did a drunk response. I'm confident. I didn't have to make up a drunk response. I just, I lied by instinct. You know, that, that was one of those sort of defects that was deep-seated. You know, I didn't have to learn to lie. That was instinctive with me. And if I want to tell the truth, I have to, I have to plan the truth. I mean, I mean, even to this day, I, I don't just instinctively blurt out the truth. You know, if, if I'm up against it, my first instinct will be to lie. And I mean, I'm still good at it, I think. <laughs> so anyway, I know that's what it did. And this is, we got through with it, and the guy t- told me that. The same thing I always heard. He said, man, you've had a lot of trouble with booze. And then he said, we have an AA group here at the institution. I think you ought to go. It was just like a conversation. It wasn't like we do today with this kind of stuff we were talking about, TJ, with, with the capturing program where you put somebody under monitoring for the rest of their life. It, was, it wasn't that. It was just a conversational thing. He said, man, you've had a lot of trouble with booze. We've got a group. You ought to go. And uh, he sent me a little slip of paper about that big a few a couple of weeks later and said, uh, you can go, you've been, you had to get on a, a list to go. And he said, you can go to your first meeting. I didn't want to go to AA. I didn't know what it was. I had never heard of it in my life. And back then, treatment was not even a vivid gleam in somebody's eye. You know, they were, I think there was some going on somewhere, but I sure didn't know it. Well, I wasn't looking for it. But you couldn't have found it anyway. There wasn't none. There was no detox. Detox was the county jail. You know, I, the only treatment I know was to hit you upside the head with a blackjack. That's the only thing I knew about that. So... I was clueless about that stuff, and and so I don't think he knew anything. Either. I don't remember if we talked anymore, but he just said you can go February second to fifty seven. I walked in to my first meeting, 
the recovery group, Jackson Prison, 300 strong. That was a, it was a huge group. And thank God, one of the finest AA groups I've ever seen in my life. And that's not just dim old memories. That was a tremendously fine group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was talking to some folks today about the difference between little casual chatty gatherings and real purposeful groups that are structured around the notion of helping drunks find this design for living. And, uh, and I am so grateful that, that I, that I was walked into a group that was sound and solid and, 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 uh, and so when I walked in, I wasn't looking to join. Yeah, I just shuffled in like a guy on Thorazine. There's one guy spoke to me out of 300. Had an officer on the door. Ivester, you read my name? Ivester, yes sir, sit down. <laughs> and I sat out in the middle of that 300, listened to my first meeting. Read the same stuff we read. Hadn't changed a lick. And I read that little bootleg book that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, nah, anyway, that thought did, whatever it is. Um, Read that and then introduced the speaker. And and the guy who spoke at that first meeting later became my first sponsor. But I listened to the first alcoholic I ever heard tell his story. Somebody may be listening to their first one. Now we're not all crazy. I mean we act like it sometimes, but but I am mild compared to the guy who spoke at my first meeting. That guy his name was Shy Walker from Kalamazoo and, and he was uh he was a bad drunk, there's no question about that. He'd had, he had done some time himself and had been on the street 15 years, been sober 15 years. And he told his story. And I couldn't figure out why. You know, I'm the kind of guy, Liz, that inspired that, 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 that banner. You know, I, I, honest to God, when I walked into that room, I never believed that there was one human on this earth who did something for another human that didn't have a hook in it. Never believed that. And I'm sure that that day Shy walked in, I thought, what's his angle? You know, what is his angle? Because, I, I mean, I didn't understand it in the first place. He still, I wouldn't have told anybody a story like that, the drunkest I'd ever been. I mean, I, I wouldn't have made one up that bad. That that was bad. And uh guy was, uh, uh anyway, he, he loved him dearly, but he was as different from me as a guy could be. A little short guy. He, now, you talk about being marked up. Eh? You, you, you talk about being marked up best. He was one of those bad fighters. Shy had, he was an ex-everything. And at one time had been a, a professional boxer and, and apparently a very poor one. And he, <laughs> he, that, boy, that boy was scratched up big time. And, uh, he looked alright from way back, you know, but if you got clothes, but he had some road wear on, on him. And, and, uh, and he told a story. I sat there saying, my God, what's wrong with this guy? I mean, a circus geek couldn't have surprised me anymore. And, uh, and uh, I'm sure he said, I'm here to help you. And I, if he said that, I'd have said, yeah, right, uh-huh, <laughs> by all of that. And, and the amazing thing is that I was back the next week. The amazing thing, I didn't want to join Alcox, no. I didn't identify with him. He was as different from me as anybody I ever met in my life. I never identified with Shy in terms of his style of living. Identified with alcoholism when I started to understand what it was. But I never did if I did. I didn't come back because I said maybe there's hope for me here. My frame of mind was what I described in the beginning. I, I was very antsy about walking in alcoholics. I was antsy about something that was going to strike me sober. I was, I was real antsy about that. I was scared to death of something spiritual because I knew that there's going to be some deep dunking going on somewhere. And, uh, I could just imagine they're going to be humming amazing grace back in the background somewhere when I walked in. Now, I love that song today, but it scared me to death back then. 
And I, I knew that was coming. And the first thing we did was pray. And we got through that meeting. When I walked out, I had to be far more confused when I left. So when I came in, I was back the next week. The only thing that brought me back was not any sense of identification or thank God I'm home at last or these are my people. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, the only thing brought me back was the magical enthusiasm that was part of Shy Walker's life. He was one of those rare people. No, well, you see a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? People that you know who can walk in a room and the minute they walk in, the room changes. They don't have to do anything. Just walk in and it happens. And Shy Walker is one of those kind of people that you just treasured time with. And that's what brought me back. It's a, we call it a program of attraction. It was a, it was a program of magnetic force to me. I think it was the force of that, that galvanizing enthusiasm that brought me back. Because if it had been on the notion of a desire to stop drinking, I felt so not only out of touch with the objectives of AA. You can well imagine my first major hurdle was being willing to live. Never mind. So, so <clears throat> when I go in, I not only feel out of place, but I feel so guilty and ashamed for being there. A guy like me, <laughs> in a place where folks are talking about hope and help and love, felt enormously out of place in that. So when I look at that, it, it just adds to the the magnitude of the miracle that uh, that and it took something. It was that spirit that pulled me back in there. And um, you know, after I got to know Shy, and he became my sponsor about a year later, and I, I was talking with him one day, and I, I started trying to express my appreciation to him. Yeah, I wasn't good at it, but I, I tried to express my appreciation. And as soon as he caught on to what I was trying to say, he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, man. Don't be thanking me for that stuff. He said, that we don't do that here. And, and, and he said something that a lot of times I've wished I could forget, but, but I can't. He said, Tom, you will never be able to repay any member of Alcoholics Anonymous back for any sincere gesture they make for you. That's not what it's about. He said, if you appreciate what's been done, pass it on to the next guy. Well, that's the heart and soul of Alcoholics I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And, and I asked him in that same conversation, I said, Shy, don't you ever, when you, you when you come in here, you're always upbeat. You're always charged up. I said, don't you just have bad days sometime and you don't feel good? He said, sure I do. He said, but when I go into a meeting, he said, I'm, I'm always confident that before the meeting's over, I'll tell somebody I'm an alcoholic. And uh, he said, if they'll let me, I'll let them know I've been sober for 15 or so years. And he said, somehow or other, when I tell an alcoholic that about myself, I feel a responsibility to act like that. To act like that. To not be some sad sack spreading gloom, but somebody who generates the fact that there is genuinely life after sobriety. And thank God for that guy. Thank God I didn't get some old sad sack that had sobered up and was so happy he could just die. You know, that... that I got a guy that was alive, and, and so I came back, and for a good while, that's what brought me back, that, that was, was that thing. Gradually, just started to feel the energy a bit, you know, and started to feel the sense of that group. I'll tell you one reason I value that group so much, and value good, solid groups. 
the first place, this is weird and hard to believe, but the first place that I ever generated trust for my fellow humans was in the recovery group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Jackson Prison. What a strange place to learn to trust people with a room full of people, some of whom had committed crimes so horrible they defied imagination. And I learned to trust in that group because I watched people doing exactly what they said they would do, keeping commitments, honoring commitments, reaching out to people with ten times more trouble than them. And, and I learned to trust because of what I saw. The first place I ever came to believe in a power greater than myself, even stranger than that to me. I was I was a guy who described himself as an atheist. I, I, not, I don't know if I was or not. It sounded a little slicker than just confused, and, and so I would say, said I was an atheist. What matters was is that where there should have been a place in my life where values formed and where a spirit lived, there was nothing but an empty coldness, and, and so there was no spiritual life. And, and uh, the first power that I ever believed in in my entire life, ever, was the power that I felt that flowed between those hairy-legged convicts. Some about that. There was a power that was greater than any of us or greater than all of us, and I felt it there for the first time. Yeah, I'd always been looking for God in some far off place and trying to imagine what he'd look like in an eight by ten photo and then pray to him and wait for him to do a magic trick so I could see that it was real. Yeah, that that's sort of the childish fantasy that I that I had about God. And in Alcoholics Anonymous I discovered the spirit inside. I'd heard that all my life. But I never heard it. And the first power that I ever believed in was the power. I couldn't name it. Didn't have to. Couldn't describe it. Didn't have to. I just had to believe that that power could restore me to sanity. That's all. And that's all that mattered is that I was willing to bet my life on it. Thank God in this program, we don't start where we ought to be. We start where we are. Thank God for that. That we don't have to come up to some sort of a standard of behavior of somebody that's going to superimpose something on us. Thank God we don't do that. We start where we are. No matter where that is. And it ain't about getting good. It's about getting well. I like to keep that very practical, hard-nosed notion of what this is about. This is not a pep rally. We have a lot of fun. We have a good time. But bottom line... This is about a hopeless alcoholic <clears throat> trying to keep a hold on life. And so the first place that I ever really believed a power, the first one I ever prayed to in my life in a mature and sincere kind of way was that one that I sensed in that room. Thank God for that. In that group, the uh, <laughs> those guys did an excellent job of introducing. We went through a few weeks of, of just total, did nothing but introduction to the steps. A meeting a week on the introduction of the steps. It's the first place I ever heard the, the program designed as a design for living. I've never forgot that. That always stuck with me because it made sense. You know, I, it, it's not some some magical event that happens to a fortunate few people who get struck sober. That's not what this is. This is a design for living that if I follow it will work for me. It doesn't even matter what my motives are. Because this dude will work, and I'm living proof of that. Living proof. And I was introduced to that, thank God, by a bunch of guys in a maximum custody penitentiary. And, and so a, a foundation started to form. And uh, 
the guys who came in, like Shai and many others who came in, uh, carried a, carried a, a huge message to me. Now I just touch on this thing and then 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 move on. But they, uh, that youth thing was a real problem. I was the youngest guy in that joint. I, they didn't keep me there because I was a you know predatory gangster or anything. They kept me there because I was just so wild and unpredictable. They knew I'd be gone if they gave me daylight, and so they kept me and Max the whole time I was there. And uh, uh, the people who came in from the outside, God, how much those folks meant to me. You know, Shy Walker was a guy that I revered, and many, many others. It's a strange thing. You know, a lot of people get hung up on trying to think about alcoholics in prison as being a different breed of cat, and and are very uncomfortable with how to communicate with with alcoholics. I'm just getting the cage that that I missed, and. Uh, the first alcoholic, after two years, I didn't identify with a single one for the first two years I was here. And the first one I ever identified with was a guy named Lou, who was a furniture salesman from Detroit. And I honestly believe that those guys told him they were going on a cookout somewhere or something. I don't believe they told him. They were going to the penitentiary. And so this guy came in, and that man was so scared. I mean, I, mean, he, I, mean, I don't think he'd ever driven past a jail, much less been in one. And, and he was scared, slammed to death. You know, all the time he's in there, he's just fidgeting, you know, looking around. And they made him get up and say a few words. And the whole, he, he, he was so scared he spoke in a falsetto. He sounded like Tiny Tim, you know. <laughs> and the whole time he's speaking, he's looking behind him, you know, to see if anybody's sneaking up on him. <laughs> he never came back. But, but thank God he came one time. That's the first guy I ever identified with. I didn't identify with some, some bank robber or somebody like that or some gangster. I, I identified with an alcoholic whose life had fallen apart. <coughs> And he was just scared to death. That's who I identified with, wasn't it? Wasn't that other kind of stuff? So for God's sakes, if you're reluctant to go into the cage, don't go in there and talk to inmates. Go in there and talk to alcoholics who went that step beyond where you might have gone. And that's that's what folks rally around. And so thank God for those folks who came in. I'll tell you where the a couple of huge turning points came. What time did I start? You know. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to quit. You ain't glazed yet. I'm watching close. If you, uh, I tell you a huge turning point. That, you know, it's wonderful to be in a good, strong group. And that is wonderful. It's wonderful to have the fellowship. The fellowship is a powerful thing. A powerful thing. But it's not enough. It's not enough. None of that stuff is enough. Because what has to happen is that a change has to happen inside. And, and I'll tell you where that happened for me. I went to a meeting one day, didn't intend to do anything life-changing, and at all, I just went to a meeting. Had a speaker from Flint. Uh, excuse me, had a speaker from Flint. I was talking to the pitcher. <laughs> and, uh, he, he, and, and this guy spent the entire meeting talking about four-step, that's all. Didn't talk about another single thing. And, and, and I, I knew what he was talking about. I'd always been a reader. I, I knew the words. And I'd been through with the, the guys. But it, the words have have little to do with the experience that comes from the action, and um, and so this guy did that. When he got through, I went back to my cell and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna do that." And I took out the old trusty legal pad, the number two pencil, sat down, and I meant to write a little story. I didn't mean to do an inventory. I meant to write a little story about how cruel life was, and what a victim of circumstances I was. That's what I meant to do. And I really wasn't that kind of guy. 
Yeah, I was going to talk about my my dwarf like excuse me, Ski, my 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 dwarf my dwarf like stepfather. Anyway, but I, that's what that's what that's what I meant to do. And uh, but I tell you, the founders were wise when they said write the inventory because I wrote two lines of that garbage, and then all at once, some folks call it a moment of clarity. It, it just it was like I hit a wall. And all at once, that just came to a screeching halt. And, you know, I believe that delusion is such a part of alcoholism. That thing of just not being able to differentiate the truth from false. I, I mean, it's a huge part of alcoholism. And, and what happened that day, I think I, for some reason I just saw the futility of that. And, and, and came to a halt and in one motion, didn't think about it, didn't plan it, didn't use columns. I just opened up and poured out my heart. That's all. Three pages later, I quit. And uh, it was hopeless scribble. Nobody could have read it. Nobody's supposed to read it. That was my inventory. And I'll tell you what, I did one later that was more thoughtful and more thorough, but it was not as important as that first one. It refined that. Well, that, that first one was the most important day's work I've ever done. Now, I don't like to put any magical power on anything, but I think that was fundamentally important for alcoholic, for, for this alcoholic to, to recover. Because when I got through with that fourth step, I knew, I knew at a cellular level that I'm alcoholic. I'm not the young case or the tragic case or the whiz kid. I'm an alcoholic. And I knew that at the core of my being. Fought a good fight. But I lost, man. I got knocked colder than a mackerel. And you know, there's a place in our book that describes a very important line that you had to hunt it, but I can't tell you where it is, it, but it's an important line where it says that, I think it's in an alcoholism chapter, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. It's first step in recovery. That sounds mild till you think about that. Because I believe that surrender is what this program is built on. It's not built on achievement and attainment and knowledge and stuff like that. It's built on surrender, that that life's done. And what I experienced that day was a total surrender. The fight was over, fellow alcoholics, and I have never fought another second since. I've never doubted for one second my alcoholism since. That door closed. The fight was done. I've come close to drinking a few times in the first first six years. I'm not I'm not somebody who used to be an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I have the mind of a chronic alcoholic because I am a chronic alcoholic. What else would I have? And and my mind is the kind that can and has at times turned irresistibly to the thought of a drink. Wish I could talk about that a little more because I think it's critical. I think an awful lot of us get caught up in this sober delusion that, oh, well, it's all done. It's all over. I'm healed. I haven't thought about a drink since I got here. I always get nervous when folks get caught up in that sort of thing. It may be true, but it may not be true one day. And unless I'm aware that this illness can, it, it, it is such that I, my mind can turn irresistibly, I think a lot of us get smacked and don't even know what happened. And so I think it's awfully important to, to do that. But I've never been the same man since that day. I, I, that, that was a tremendous turning point for me. I've never been the same. I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous that day. Didn't tell anybody. Didn't have to. It's the easiest thing in the world to join. I've been a member ever since. 
And I've never been to a meeting from that day to this without knowing 100% why I'm there. I know why I'm here. I'm not here to entertain or educate or inform or energize. I mean, if, if something happens, great. But that ain't bottom line for me. I'm here because when I actively reach out to other alcoholics, I get better. I get better. That's why I'm here. I'm not here because I'm a good guy. Yeah, I'm here because I know that active work without other alcoholic works like nothing else. Whew. Heart and soul of that thing. And then yeah, the, the, the rest of it is a, is a process of the rest of the program. From that point forward is a, you know, the way I like to look at it. The first three steps are about surrender and relationship with the power. And then from four through seven is basically a, a, getting in a relationship with myself in terms of knowing who I am. What do I mean when I say I'm an alcoholic? Do I understand anything about this illness? And if I do, do I want to get well or don't I? I think that's what four through seven means. Is you've seen it, you know what it is, you want to get well or don't you? You willing to change or aren't you? It's the facing up, stepping up, showing up time. And I think we lose a lot of members in, in that area, but that's that's a whole other deal. And the, the other thing in the steps that that I, I just want to allude to is, um, you know, there's 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 great surgery in Alcoholics Anonymous that 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 it's not all just sort of mystical disappearing of stuff. There's some real surgery that, that's got specific terms laid out for it. I think about the kid that came to see you. <coughs> excuse me, came to see you. The um, the the thing of my belief is this that I will never be a free man in sobriety until I go back and right the wrongs that I imposed on people. I believe that every time I used, abused, misused, mistreated, conned, hurt other people, I didn't win. I lost. And I paid for it with a piece of my soul. It doesn't go away. And I don't think I'll ever be free till I go back and right those wrongs and get those warped, distorted relationships straightened out. The freedom steps, the surgery of Alcoholics Anonymous in which I can become a free man. And then when that happens, I had to, one of, one of the other few advantages of being old is that I had a chance to, to, to meet Bill Wilson. Went to my first uh, international in Toronto in 65, and my primary uh, uh, purpose was to meet, uh, was meet Bill. I didn't want to tell him anything. I, I didn't want to see him. I want to make sure he was there, you know. And so, <laughs> and so I went up there, thought it might be my last chance, and sure enough it was. And so I went up there, sat in some meetings with him. And one one day in a in a traditions meeting, he said something very important to me. I later saw it writ, written somewhere. He, he said, "Alcoholics," and we, I guess we're talking about anonymity. He said, "Alcoholics Anonymous was never intended to be some furtive hiding place for alcoholics." Yeah, and that's not what this program's about. He said, "The function of Alcoholics Anonymous is to restore me to my rightful place in society." That was good for me to hear. That I didn't need to lead some subterranean existence. That anonymity didn't mean hide. It meant pride. It didn't mean hide. And, and that I could be free and I could take my place. i tell you one, one remarkable thing to me about, about, um, this whole business of recovery and restoration that, you know, I, like a lot of people, we kid about it. You know, I'd been told that, that I had a, a lot of potential when I was upright. Uh, which wasn't often, but but I'm, I, I looked good when I was on my feet. 
<laughs> I've been told that a lot. I always thought it was kind of a joke. But you know it was true. <laughs> I really did. Now, I'm a hell of a good worker. And I've got some creative ability. Yeah, that, that's an amazing thing to me. And when I got sober, mad stuff happened. You know, I finished two years of college while I was locked up. <laughs> when I got out, I got a new life, you know, that, that, that compulsive drive that used to put me on the moon, put me in the world. And, and I would just attack things, you know, I, I mean, I didn't have any, you know, drunks are either slow motion or wide open. There ain't no coast in there, nowhere. I mean, and, and I was wide open. You know? And, uh, and so I, I went through that, that prison deal and, and, uh, I was tremendously blessed. I, I'll just say it this way. There is nothing. Nothing, nothing that Alcoholics Anonymous offers that I didn't experience in a maximum custody penitentiary. Nothing. And what that says to me, I don't care what your circumstances are. I mean, I care. But I don't care what they are. They are not insurmountable barriers. This program will work. And it doesn't have to have some cushy kind of an environment to do it in. They work for me as well as it's ever worked anywhere. And I left there a free man. I became a free man while I was still there. And when I left, I was a solid, functioning member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was no big deal. I mean, it was a big deal to get out. But it was no big hassle to get out because all I had to do was take that and just change membership. I just moved to a new group. And I had a little more flair to it than that. But that's really what it boiled down to. I felt awful good about it. And I uh, hit the ground running. And, uh, and, and just had a, a marvelous time. I, I was so excited. I was like a young goat. Man, I lost 25 pounds the first year I was out. And I, I mean, I didn't even know how to quit, but I didn't know how to slow down. Never mind, say no. I, I mean, I just took off and went wild. Uh, second week I was out, uh, said, the guys asked me to go to prison with me and I went. And, and they scared to death. I thought they'd go keep me. I went over there. <laughs> a simpler day, yeah, but I went into the A meeting. Two months after that, I was outside sponsoring that group. Can you imagine that? Two months after I'm out, and I'm the out, I'm the trusted servant. And I just got out. You know, what a deal. Man, I, I could not have been more affirmed if I was elected governor. And that was just a great, great feeling. About the same time, my pro supervisor, and I'll tell you this in Russia here, because folks get on my case, but don't tell it. Miracles happen here. They truly do. I'm a great believer in miracles. But my, I have a rather pragmatic view of miracles. Miracles, I believe, are what happens when, 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 when preparation and opportunity meet, God does the introduction. I believe that's when miracles happen. And 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 Jesus it never happened for me. Uh, uh, about the same time I came outside sponsorship, a pro guy came to me one day and said, uh, "Tom, you real active in this A thing." And I worried me because I thought he was going to tell, tell me I needed to slow down, and I knew it wouldn't. And uh, he said, "Wouldn't it help you if you could drive?" And I said, "Yes, sir, but I can't." You know, like he didn't know. And uh, on my parole papers, it letters that big. This man's never drive a motor vehicle. This man never drink alcoholic beverages. I accepted that as facts of life. And uh, and uh, he said, "All right, let me check it out." He called me a while later and asked me to meet him at Sears store uptown. And I and I walked in that day. My sister drove me up there. Walked in. My guy was in the back talking to another fellow. Story is absolutely true. And uh walked in, he introduced me to the fellow, we talked a little, didn't talk about driving, talked about bird dogs or something, I, I don't know what it was. But we just chatted, you know, like folks will do. And when we got through, the guy handed me a driver's license. Didn't even ask me if I could drive. <laughs> he just handed me the thing. No test, road, written, verbal, nothing. Didn't even pay for it. <laughs> 
that's as wrong as two left feet. I, I know it, it doesn't work like that. But I've been driving ever since, you know. <laughs> when God's got work for us to do, the walls come down. I don't care what they are. I know that not only on my own, of the basis of my own life, but to God knows the unbelievable restorations that I've seen. They, they, they happen so commonly in AA, we almost take them for granted. Unbelievable things. Just when I turn this broken and wasted life over to, 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 to this power and let this program be my, my engine through life. Amazing things. They uh, became DCM five months as I. You know, same guy who wondered if he'd ever be trusted by anybody. Two years after that, I was sitting in my house one day, and I got a phone call from the state capitol. The guy on the phone I'd met once, and uh, and he, he worked in the prison system. He, he, he visited the unit where I was outside sponsored. And he said, Mr. Ivester, <laughs> and uh, he said, we're expanding the prison, the uh, rehabilitation program in the prison, and we were wondering if you would consider accepting a position. I'm sweeping the floor in a mill on the third shift. I've never been offered a job by anybody except some drunk didn't have one himself. I mean a job. And this guy's talking about a responsible position. And I'm just out of prison a couple of years. Got two years from Michigan State. And I, that barely could spell Michigan State. I, so, and the first thing I said was, do you know who you're talking to? And uh, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we've checked you out. And of course they have. And... and uh, and I, to him, I said, I said, good God, man, I'd rather do that than anything I could imagine. I said, I never, never thought of that. Nobody else had. At that time, there had never been an ex-con in history hired into anything like that. And I knew they weren't going to start with this dude. And, uh, and that's what I really believed, that that ain't going to happen. But sure enough, it did. And I went to work in, in, uh, in, in corrections. And, and then 39 years later, finished up a career that uh, was a marvelous career in every sense of the word. Marvelous career. I see, you know, it's an amazing thing when you do good work and have potential. You, you start kick, getting kicked up to like, find your level of incompetence somewhere. You know, I said, <laughs> and, uh, so I, I went from rehab officer to supervisor and then director. And then one day the head of our system asked me to stop by the office. He had a little assignment for me. And so I went by. And uh, he said, Tom, I'd like for you to take over an institution as warden. And uh, <laughs> I tell you, it's unbelievable to be there. Yeah, but I'm mud wrestling with the guys, you know. You can kind of understand that. But he'd want me to be the man. Uh, he'd want me to be the guy with the machine gun and, and all that. I, <laughs> and I said, boss, come on now. When I got off the floor, I said, boss, <laughs> boss. <laughs> I guarantee you, of all the things guys have delusions about in the penitentiary, that ain't one of them. That is not it. That's, that's it. Forget it. You got. It. And uh, and so I said, God, I don't know about that, man. I, I don't want to be the man. And, and I said, Give me some time to think about it. He said, Oh, sure. Take five minutes. Give me five minutes. I never prayed so hard, fast my life. I'm up down that hall, running to the John, and, and uh, I said, Okay, I'll do it. And then that started an, an unbelievable career. That's a lousy job, but it's an it's an extremely powerful job, though. Got it. And I, the, the the reasoning that I, I knew that I didn't particularly aspire to be a warden, but but I knew that with some power and some authority, I might be able to do some things that I thought needed done, and and that proved to be the case. 
I became the go-to guy if he wanted to do something different. I, I, they knew I was just goofy enough that I would tackle about anything. And, and so I spent my career developing new stuff. But they'd want to open an institution. For, for I opened one for, for the reintegration. They opened one just to design, to get people back into a community. Developed one for youth. So we wanted to separate them from zoos and put them into some kind of an environment. So it was a marvelous career. That would, uh, challenge and opportunities are unbelievable. And 39 years later... Discovered I was the oldest guy in the system. <laughs> I never aspired to be that. And uh, also that I would make as much money not working as I made working. <laughs> I said, well, that's a heck of a deal, man. And uh, so I, I finally retired. Now I'm unemployed. It's a pitiful story. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the, day I, the day I retired, the, the AA guys in North Carolina had already got a hold of me and uh, Asked me if I would serve as the AA Corrections Chair, and so I started that job the day I retired. Now, the only thing I did was just move to the other side of the fence and uh, quit getting paid. Uh, if my wife told me mine was the strangest employment she had ever heard of, I'm busier now than I've ever been in my life, but I'm having a ball. And uh, it's been a heck of a deal, man. I, I tell you, it's been a, an absolute uh, hoot for me for these 46 years. I, I, I've, I've never had a dry period in here. I mean, I've been dry the whole time, but I haven't had a, you know what I mean, a dry period where it just got lost the juices. You know, people talk about burnout and all this kind of jazz. I know there's such a thing. But what I've found is that intensive work in the spirit of service generates energy. It doesn't sap energy. It generates energy. And and I've got more pep. I just turned to Big CMO, guys. Big CMO. And I... <laughs> Never thought I'd do that. <laughs> kind of like my buddy over here from Omaha. He said that somebody asked him, well, he just turned, he, in fact, he just turned to Big Seven One. He's older than me. But somebody told him when he turned 70, he said, don't you think you better slow down? And Dick said, slow down? Hell, man, I'm 70 years old. I've got to hurry. I don't have much time. <laughs> and, and that's the way I am. I, I, when I go out of here, I'm, I'm, I'm like somebody asked a, a great writer one time, said, what would you do if you knew you only had six months to live? He said, I'd write faster. <laughs> That's me. Yeah, I, God, forgive me, but I, I'd never want to become some weasened up old dude that's just sitting around here just, just sucking air. Yeah. I, I, I want to be doing the deal. Yeah, I want to be, when I, when I go out of here, I hope I'm wide open. Because I am absolutely, and going into my 47th year, and I am having more fun than most folks uh, that I know, and I'm having a hoot. It has never been more dynamic for me. I've never been more enthused. I'm absolutely as convinced of the vitality of the work and the importance. And so if you're not somebody that's excited about this thing, if you're not on fire, for God's sake, man, light a match. <laughs> <laughs>